0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and
1: more.
2: G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney. Tonight, Scott Morrison leaving Parliament to look back on the former Prime Minister's legacy. Also, the stage three tax cuts. Damned if he changes them, damned if he doesn't. What will Anthony Albanese do?
1: If they've promised it, they should go ahead with it. It's like me saying to my grandchildren, I promised to take them somewhere and then I turn around and say, oh no, we're not going. It's only fair. They earn more, they should pay more.
2: And will sanctions on the Russian hacker behind the Medibank data breach actually have an impact? Thanks for your company. Former Prime Minister Scott Morrison today confirmed he's bowing out of politics, sparking a pre-budget by-election in the southern Sydney seat of Cook that he's held for more than 16 years. Mr Morrison is taking on several new advisory roles in the defence and international relations space, focused on the United States and the Pacific. Like all uh, all former Prime Ministers, his legacy is still being debated. The man who stopped the boats, helped guide Australia through the COVID pandemic, stood up to China and ushered in a historic period of low unemployment, also took a secret holiday in Hawaii during the Black Summer bushfires and was sworn in to lead the portfolios of several of his closest colleagues without their knowledge. Angus Randall looks back.
3: His 2007 entry into politics came when his party was at its lowest, the Kevin 07 landslide, leaving the Liberals in the political wilderness. As the party rebuilt, Scott Morrison's influence steadily grew, even if he wasn't always gentle. I can be a bit of a bulldozer, but you know, over the last few years... That's been pretty important. ScoMo, as he became known, would help define the next 15 years of Australian politics. The member for Cook in southern Sydney was appointed shadow immigration minister in 2009. And when Tony Abbott won government four years later, the former marketing executive launched a new slogan Operation Sovereign Borders is the new government's action to stop the boats. Under Operation Sovereign Borders, Scott Morrison says he reduced boat arrivals to almost zero and that no asylum seekers has died at sea on his watch. But he also brought in new levels of secrecy, refusing to release information about what he called on-water matters. When Malcolm Turnbull claimed the prime ministership in 2015, Scott Morrison became treasurer. By 2018, the party had turned on Malcolm Turnbull. Peter Dutton was seen as the likely successor, but after two leadership spills in the space of a week, the self-described daggy dad was in the top job. The pressure was on straight away, with only eight months until the next election and facing a public exhausted by backroom party spills. But in 2019, Scott Morrison defied political expectations and won the unwinnable election in miracles. The honeymoon was short-lived. While Australia burned during black summer, the Prime Minister was on a Hawaiian holiday. You know, I, I don't hold a hose, mate. And a bigger challenge was to come. As the world struggled to comprehend the scale of the COVID-19 pandemic, Australia closed its borders.
4: This will put us all to the test
3: at no time like this since the Second World War. Scott Morrison's government rolled out the country's biggest ever economic rescue package Many credit this for saving countless jobs and businesses. It was a tough time for governments the world over. It took nearly a year for vaccines to be developed and when they reached Australian shores, the rollout was slow. It's not a race, it's not a competition. Despite this, Australia came out of the height of the pandemic with one of the lowest COVID death rates and highest vaccination rates in the world and international matters would soon be back on the agenda an historic deal with the US and UK. The first major initiative of AUKUS will be to deliver
4: a nuclear-powered submarine fleet for Australia.
3: It came at a cost, both financially, the $830 million it took to break out of a French submarine deal, and to his international reputation, French President Emmanuel Macron basically calling him a liar. you think he lied to you? I don't think. I know. And a reckoning closer to home was coming. He was heavily criticised for how he responded to allegations of sexual assault and poor culture inside Parliament House. By the time he was back on the campaign trail in 2022... You
4: may not like everything we've done. You may not like me that much.
3: Voters were ready for a change.
4: I've always believed in Australians and their judgement... And I've always been prepared to accept their verdicts.
3: After the election loss, he immediately moved to the backbench and the focus moved to how long he would stick around. But Scott Morrison couldn't stay out of the news for long. Scott Morrison owes the Australian people an apology for undermining our parliamentary democracy. In August 2022, it emerged that during the early stages of the pandemic, Scott Morrison advised the Governor-General to appoint him Minister for Health, finance, industry, home affairs and treasury. Many of the ministers were unaware they were sharing their portfolios with the then Prime Minister. Scott Morrison was unapologetic, saying it was an extraordinary measure for extraordinary times.
4: I have no intention now, Mr Speaker, of submitting to the political intimidation of this government.
3: Nearly a year later, there was further backlash. The Royal Commission into the Robodebt Scheme found he allowed Cabinet to be misled while serving as the Social Services Minister in the Abbott government. Multiple coalition governments took part in the scheme that automatically issued debts to welfare recipients. Hundreds of thousands of people were issued debts they did not owe. Again, the former Prime Minister was unrepentant, calling the commission a political lynching.
4: While acknowledging the regrettable, again, the regrettable unintended consequences and impacts of the scheme on individuals and families. I do, however, completely reject each of the adverse findings against me in the Commission's report as unfounded and wrong.
3: The Opposition Leader Peter Dutton has thanked Scott Morrison for his service to the nation and dedication to the Liberal Party. His departure will trigger a by-election in the seat of Cook. The Liberals hold the seat with a 12% margin. Angus Randall there. Well, Scott Morrison
2: prides himself on his connection to locals in the seat of Cook in the Sutherland Shire uh, south of Sydney. It takes in suburbs such as Cronulla, Caringbah and Engadine. And David Sparks, our reporter, is in Cronulla. David. What's the general feeling about Scott Morrison there? Well, David,
5: I've been walking up and down today along the the walkway along the the beach at Cronulla and and up to the main shopping centre, speaking to quite a few people, and it's very clear that Scott Morrison is, is a very popular man here, a very popular politician. I spoke to quite a lot of people, and. The overwhelming view was that he'd been not only a good Prime Minister, but a a good local member helping out on on local issues. I found a few people who weren't entirely happy with him. Some, well, one, actually only one, uh, was unhappy with his management of COVID, said he was too tough. Um, uh, Another was a, a little critical of him taking on those extra ministries. But on those issues, even, most people said that they were very happy with him. Here's one example, a very typical example, actually, of the kind of response I got as I spoke to people. Sir, uh, Scott Morrison's retired. I mean, what are your thoughts on his performance, his time as, as a politician? I think he was a great, um, a great
6: leader. I think he, um, he supported people um, and I think he had some very
5: good values. Can you be a bit more specific? Is there something, I mean, maybe there are many things. Can you think of something specific that he did that you really liked?
6: Gosh, that's a really good question. I don't think there's anything specific. I, I, I look at the way people lead overall, and it doesn't necessarily sort of indicate one specific event or, or outcome, but just the overall leadership of, um, of Scott. I thought was very good. Let me hit with an example. COVID. How do you think he handled the COVID crisis? Um, I think as a leader, again, he handled it very well. Um, he organised the, um, uh, the health practitioners, um, uh, it's the AHPPC, together to try and sort of put them, all of the leaders in states and territories, and I thought it went very well. Um, I think we managed the, the crisis, uh, especially with an unknown sort of um, environment, uh, very well.
2: That's one of the voters in the suburb of Cronulla, in Scott Morrison's seat of Cook in southern Sydney. Uh, David Sparks, our reporter there. David, what about the actual electorate? Do you sense any mood for a shift away from the Liberal Party in this upcoming by-election?
5: Absolutely not, based on the conversations I've had today, David. Um, I did ask people if they'd keep voting Liberal. And those I'm, I'm talking about the ones who expressed their admiration for Scott Morrison, which was the vast majority, and they were all pretty emphatic. This is a seat, an electorate that's been held by the Liberal Party since 1975. Scott Morrison, uh, I think, had it on a margin of 12% at the last election, picking up 55% of the primary vote, which is, in this day and age it is a lot. So, um, And the Teals didn't run here at the last election. There's no indication yet that they will, and from my conversations, there's no indication that voters are even looking for an alternative to the Liberals right now.
2: David Sparks, thank you. David Sparks there in Cronulla in Sydney. So how does Mr Morrison himself view his legacy? And and what about his colleagues? What do they say about him now? For the past 18 months or so, the ABC's been working on a documentary series about the Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison governments, how the three prime ministers gained, wielded and ultimately lost power. The first of three shows begins on Monday night and the journalist behind it, Mark Willisey, joined me earlier to discuss what the program, it's called Nemesis, reveals about Scott Morrison's time in politics. Mark Willacy, thanks for being with us. You've actually spent more time than most with Scott Morrison in recent months. How does Mr Morrison himself frame his own legacy?
4: Yes, David, I, I spoke to him leading into the documentary series and on camera for eight hours over two days, and he was surprisingly candid. And Scott Morrison told me before our interview he didn't want to talk about legacies, but I did push him on it anyway. I asked him what he was most proud of. The first thing he said was he was proud of dealing with what he called the biggest existential threat to Australia since the Second World War and the Great Depression. That, of course, the pandemic. The pandemic. The mm. COVID pandemic. Mm. He says that with the you know the help of states, about 30,000 lives were saved by the measure that they measures that they all enacted and. Another thing he told me he was proud of was standing up to what he called the coercion of the Chinese government, which, of course, fed into the COVID pandemic. Mm. And and he said he did that with not just words, but by deeds. And one of those responses, of course, to China was the AUKUS Strategic Defence Agreement and the nuclear submarine deal with the US and the UK. And obviously, that's still got a long way to go. But Scott Morrison sees AUKUS as something none of his predecessors ever attempted, let, let alone achieved. And finally, sort of surprisingly, perhaps, he said another thing he was proud of was putting in place a national mental health and suicide prevention strategy worth billions of dollars. So Mm. that was what he was proud of most in answer to that question.
2: What about the controversies? And I guess the one that springs to mind, first of all, is the secret multiple ministries appointing himself minister for all sorts of portfolios behind his cabinet colleagues backs.
4: Yeah, and and often, you know, for the series, you know, we talked to dozens and dozens of his colleagues and and the revelations that Scott Morrison had sworn himself into the portfolios of some of his ministers, of course that did that did not break until several months after the 2022 election which he lost. And when it did, of course, it went off like a bomb amongst his coalition colleagues. There's no doubt that it gravely damaged his standing within Mm. the coalition and even damaged some of his friendships, particularly with his former treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Now, he did admit he had regrets over that, and I put to him that... Josh Frydenberg had told me in his interview with me that it had damaged their relationship and and the fact that he hadn't told Frydenberg at the time and they were living at the lodge together during the pandemic at the time. And Morrison responded by saying that he'd apologised, of course, to Josh Frydenberg and that they'd reconnected. Though, David, having spoken to Josh Frydenberg, I'm not so sure about that. And, of course, the multiple ministries affair resulted in Scott Morrison being the first former Prime Minister censured by Parliament. Not an achievement he would want, I don't think.
2: It seems that ambition is really at the heart of of your documentary and, and in particular, the relationship between, well, I guess, Scott Morrison, Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott, but but in particular Scott Morrison and, and Malcolm Turnbull. Obviously, Scott Morrison taking the reins after... Mr Turnbull's downfall. What can you tell us about those
4: relationships? Yes, that is an interesting question, David. There is no doubt that Malcolm Turnbull worked closely with Scott Morrison for many years. Uh, Scott Morrison was Malcolm Turnbull's treasurer. But Malcolm Turnbull told me that once he assumed the prime ministership after he deposed Tony Abbott, that Tension started to to develop pretty quickly. He said that Scott Morrison, as treasurer, had this habit of briefing out to the media. Some would call that leaking, um, but that he brief issues of real importance to the media about issues like tax, tax reform and, and Turnbull said, look, once you brief out to the media, you really can poison those issues and that debate and, and that's what he thinks happened. So there was some sharp words there between Turnbull and Morrison over those issues. Um, but I think the issue that really dissolved their friendship, and they had a friendship, was of course when Malcolm Turnbull faced a result, a revolt from right-wing elements in the party and yeah. and a challenge from Peter Dutton and and it all fell apart in what's called the week of madness in, in September 2018. And, and according to Malcolm Turnbull, who at the time thought Scott Morrison and he he said that Scott Morrison was a loyal deputy... Turnbull seems to have re-evaluated that. He said that Scott Morrison played a double game during that week of madness and was involved in his downfall. Mm. Now, Morrison absolutely, flatly denies that. He said he didn't know the move by Dutton was on. He couldn't plan. But it led to this friendship. Um, It's over, basically, and, and both men talked about that. And I got a sense from Scott Morrison that there was some genuine... Uh, Dismay, if I could put it that way, that that friendship had uh, ended, and he hopes that perhaps one day it could be revived.
2: Mark Willisy, wonderful to talk to you. Can't wait to see the show. Thank you. Thanks, David. And Mark Willisy is the journalist behind the Nemesis documentary series, which airs on ABC TV on Monday night at 8 pm. This is PM, you're listening to. I'm David Lipson. You can hear all our programs. Don't forget live or later on the ABC Listen app. A tax cut for everyone, that was the Prime Minister's promise today, as speculation continues to swirl that there may be changes to the Stage 3 income tax cuts due to take effect on July the 1st. Lower income earners are likely to benefit most if the tax cuts are expanded, but any move to withhold tax cuts at the top end of town will come with a serious political risk and, no doubt, accusations of a broken election promise. And then there's the question of whether any cost-of-living relief will only fuel inflation. Here's David Taylor.
7: Australia is among the highest taxing countries in the world, especially when it comes to personal income tax.
2: Uh, The idea
8: was uh, to give three rounds, first two rounds, to low- uh, and then middle-income taxpayers... Uh, leaving high-income taxpayers to last.
7: That's independent economist Chris Richardson. And it might sound incredibly jarring for some, but the reality is higher-income earners shoulder much of the tax burden in Australia, 60% in fact of the total personal income
8: tax take. To be fair, uh, the vast bulk of uh, personal tax is paid by higher-income earners. That's why they get the vast bulk of Uh, personal tax cuts.
7: He thinks the hype around the final round of the multi-year tax reform is overblown.
8: There's not um, an enormous fairness problem in these tax cuts, or at least nothing like much of the public discussion would suggest. Um, But Uh, you know, they're probably a little too big and may yet get bigger.
7: The problem is that the tax breaks get bigger as incomes rise, leaving wealthy Australians better off in the midst of a cost of living and housing crisis. In its current form in law, the tax package would give a worker on $100,000 a year a tax cut, worth $1,375 a year, while a worker on $180,000 a year would receive $6,075 a year. The benefit increases to $9,075 a year for a worker on $200,000 or more. Clearly, this puts more money in middle-income earners' pockets to spend, which is why the legislation was passed in the first place, to ease the burden on taxpayers, when inflation, or the cost of living, wasn't in the headlines.
8: Uh, And they're probably a little too soon for an economy um, juggling an inflation problem. So, um, multiple dimensions, uh, but we have currently the highest chunk of uh, incomes going to personal tax in Australian history. Something needs to move.
7: This legislation was actually passed with Labor's support in 2019, albeit reluctantly. And in the 2022 election, Anthony Albanese promised no changes. But the situation changed dramatically. We can thank the pandemic for that. Impact Economics and Policy lead economist Angela Jackson.
9: So, What we're looking at with the stage three tax cuts, obviously, is, you know, very expensive tax cuts, you know, over $20 billion a year, uh, where the predominant benefits, the biggest beneficiaries are high income earners. And I think, you know, when you look at it in terms of who benefits um, and when you're looking at people on incomes of $200,000 benefiting $9,000 a year each, uh, they are pretty eye-watering benefits. And for most taxpayers out there, they may not even be paying that amount of tax, uh, let alone to you know receive a tax cut of that size. So they are very inequitable, these tax cuts. And I think there is has been a justification since they were announced to really think about how they were comprised to ensure that the benefits really do go more towards the lower and middle end, where people are fight, facing much higher effective marginal tax rates um, and where the benefits to the economy are much greater in terms of encouraging workforce participation.
7: Do you think the implementation of the stage three tax cuts will lead to higher inflation?
9: Providing such you know, a large scale taxing, tax cut will add to inflationary pressures because it will add to demand across the economy.
2: That's impact economics and policy lead economist Angela Jackson ending David Taylor's report. So how would voters react to any changes to their tax bill should the Labor caucus make changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts when it meets tomorrow? And are the tax cuts in their current form fair? Reporter Isabel Masali headed to Armadale in Perth's south, where residents there have mixed views. <laughs>
0: This playground might need a bit of maintenance, but it's still popular with the Children of Armadale, located in Perth's south-east. It's an area with many residents on the lower end of the socio-economic scale, so Mother Anita was surprised to see it top the national list of rising property values. According to CoreLogic, house prices here jumped 25% last year.
10: That was actually a big shock for us because we moved from Sydney, um, and then uh, the house prices over there has been like raging, way too expensive, and we couldn't even look for it. Uh, but here, uh, it's surprising that like people are moving, uh, moving as well as uh, people from other states are buying here. Um, making it as a potential growth in
0: the market. But the housing value increase isn't really helping to deal with the cost of living increases. Many people here tell me they've had to cut back on spending because of price spikes in essential items such as food and clothing. So how does she feel about reports the federal government may change its mind about giving tax cuts for those earning between $180,000 and $200,000 a year?
10: I'm not sure about that because I'm not sure about their situation. Like, if they're, you know, how they're living. It depends on their living style as well. So, um, I feel like it, it, it is okay to get a tax cut if they're, if you're earning that much, like as a person, because, uh, you know, I, I think it's 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 okay.
0: The other thing that the government might do is raise the tax-free threshold. So that would help low-income earners. What do you think about that?
10: I think that would be good because, um, as, as as a working both people working in a family, um, the th- tax sorry tax threshold income if they cut it, a bit, I mean, uh, make it a bigger, uh, that'd be a bit more helpful. So we don't have to, because for everything we are um, paying for, we already paying tax in that, and and apart from that, we are paying tax from our. Um, Uh, salary as well. So I feel like we are paying double for everything. So maybe it's a good idea if you could increase the tax threshold income and uh, that takes off that pressure from families.
0: Mother of two Melissa doesn't want higher income earners to pay any less tax than they are now. Everyone should really be paying the right amount of tax. We should be contributing to society. We should be paying more but it's, it's only fair. They earn more, they should be paying more tax. On the other side of the playground, I meet Grandmother Judy. She tells me her daughter has six children and because of the housing market, she's forced to live with her ex-partner. In Judy's home, her partner is about to lose his job with the shutdown of the Alcoa alumina refinery.
1: As your wage goes higher, if anything, I think you should be paying more tax if you get what I mean. So when you when you earn a, a, a low amount, you should only pay a minimum amount of tax. All these rich people, they should be the ones footing the bill, not us, not us um, other people, lower income earners. They shouldn't have to pay. Not really,
0: I don't think. But she wants Anthony Albanese to know she strongly believes the government should stick to its plan.
1: I don't think it's right. If they've promised it, they should go ahead with it. It's like me saying to my grandchildren, right, they want, I promised to take them somewhere and then i turn around and say, oh, no, we're not going. Well, they're going to get awfully upset, aren't they? And it, you learn. they learn not to trust you.
2: That's Armadale grandmother Judy ending Isabel Massali's report. Australia has struck back at the man accused of being responsible for the 2022 Medibank data breach. Alexander Ermakov has been named, shamed and sanctioned for his role. The first time an international hacker has been punished under laws to target online crime. The government has implemented what are known as Magnitsky-style sanctions. These allow countries to punish individuals rather than regimes or governments. They include a travel ban on Mr Ermakov and it's now a criminal offence for anyone to provide financial support to him with either assets or money. But will it be enough to deter other would-be cyber thieves from targeting Australia? Amber Jacobs takes a look.
11: It's regarded as Australia's worst ever data breach. 9.7 million Medibank customers had their personal information, including their names, dates of birth, Medicare numbers and health details stolen by hackers. Much of it was published on the dark web. Home Affairs and Cyber Security Minister Claire O'Neill says its impact cannot be underestimated. Medibank,
0: in my view, was the single most devastating cyber attack that we have experienced as a nation.
11: Now, a name has been put to the crime. Following a joint investigation by the Australian Signals Directorate and Australian Federal Police, 34-year-old Alexander Ermakov has been identified as a key figure in the attack. These people are cowards and they are scumbags. They hide behind technology and today the Australian government is saying that when we put our minds to it. We will unveil who you are. It's the first time the government has used its cyber sanctions framework. The legislation created in 2021 applies financial punishments to people involved in significant cyber attacks. The governments use what's known as Magnitsky style sanctions, which allow countries to sanction individuals rather than regimes or governments. Richard Buckland is a professor in cybercrime at the University of New South Wales.
6: The US has done it before, some countries have done it, but Australia's never done this before. It's essentially saying, rather than, oh, people in other countries doing this, they're beyond our power, because normally they're in other jurisdictions, it's us signalling, actually, we're now starting to reach out against people in other
12: countries.
11: The government has also imposed a travel ban on Mr Ermakov and made it a criminal offence for anyone to provide financial support to him with either assets or money. Breaking these rules could attract 10 years in jail or heavy fines. But will this work? Well, Professor Buckland isn't so sure.
6: I assume... All his assets are in Russia or in countries friendly to Russia. It's hard to do anything concretely against him now. But we really need international norms on this.
11: But the investigation means Mr Ermakov has been revealed to the world as a cyber criminal. He's believed to be part of the Russian hacking group R-Evil, known for stealing data for ransoms. And Professor Buckland says this type of public exposure won't be good for business.
12: It's
6: just a little bit embarrassing to have been identified. And and face is everything. Really, how Ari, well, the group he was in, was sort of strangled initially, was um, the FBI did this very clever campaign of releasing information about how they were cheating their customers. And by providing this information, they just suddenly lost a whole lot of credit.
11: So could naming and shaming be the key to taking down cyber criminals? Mohi Ahmed is a senior lecturer of computing and security at Edith Cohen University.
12: At the end of the day, cyber criminals are playing the anonymity cards. It doesn't really matter whether he's planning to travel or he cannot do any business here in Australia. It is equally bad for his own business, even if he's in Russia, because if he is publicly named and shamed here in Australia, that means... He is no longer a very good cyber criminal.
11: He says the likes of R-Evil will likely rethink how they go about their business in the wake of Australia's sanctions.
12: Since one of their group members is exposed, they will be really cautious, they will have to think about newer strategies to launch cybercrime.
11: But experts say countries like Australia will always be attractive to cybercriminals.
12: This is one of the most lucrative crime anyone can think of. Australia is one of the prime targets because of its location, its very low population, and not to mention one of the richest economies in the world. Reports of cybercrime have
11: spiked over recent years, with a report in November showing state sponsored cyber groups and hackers had ramped up their attacks on Australian infrastructure and companies. Late last year, one of the country's largest ports fell victim to hackers. And more recently, hackers targeted Victoria's court recording database.
2: Amber Jacobs reporting. And that's the program for today. Thanks very much for joining us here on PM. I'm David Lipson. You can always find our interviews and reports on the PM webpage if you want to revisit them or share them We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then, have a great night.